The Guardian. If you hadn't already heard, this month is The Guardian's 200th birthday. We're marking the occasion with videos, podcasts and events you can take part in, like The Guardian at 200, made in Manchester, on May the 11th. It's all at theguardian.com forward slash 200. Here on Science Weekly, we've also been delving back into the archives to see how science reporting has changed in the time since Lord Kelvin described absolute zero, Darwin devised his theory on evolution by natural selection, and Marie Curie discovered radium. One significant event that seemed especially relevant today was the 1918 flu pandemic, which, helped by the First World War, spread around the world. Around a third of the global population is believed to have been infected, and approximately 50 million people died. Now, deep into the pandemic defining this generation, we wanted to go back to look at what dealing with a deadly virus was like back then, and consider what we have and haven't learned. Many of our medical specialists were puzzled when, during last March and April, they were called upon to see patients with an ensemble of symptoms hitherto unknown to them. The principle of these being a great somnolence. Quite often these these patients presented initially with what doctors described as a mild influenza, but then it progressed very, very rapidly within a matter of hours. And within 24 hours, the patient might be dead. It's really difficult to know what to take away from our experience of flu and to apply to COVID and what not to. But the experience of Wuhan is really interesting right at the beginning because here's a city of 11 million people and the Chinese managed to contain the disease there. And flu is generally considered uncontainable because it just spreads so fast and so evenly through a population. I'm Nicola Davis and you're listening to the first of our special 200th birthday episodes on Science Weekly. Joining me to look back on the last big pandemic to sweep the globe were Laura Spinney, a science journalist and author of Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World, and Mark Honigsbaum, ex-chief reporter for The Observer, senior lecturer at City University, and author of The Pandemic Century, A Hundred Years of Panic, Hysteria and Hubris. On the 22nd of June 1918, The Guardian reported the outbreak of influenza as wide apart as the west of Ireland and London but said that Dr Anderson, Rochdale Medical Officer of Health, had noted that it wasn't known where the origin of the virus was, but they thought it might have been carried in by a soldier. The article also pointed out that it is not by any means a common form of influenza, and doctors at first had some difficulty diagnosing it. Interviewed by a representative of the Manchester Guardian last night, Dr Anderson described the symptoms of the disease. The incubation period, he said, is very short, from 10 to 24 hours, and one child suffering from the disease could easily transmit it to 100 others in a very short time. The attack also is short and sharp, lasting, as a rule, three or four days. The first symptoms are drowsiness and a feeling of incapacity for work. Laura, I wonder if you can take us back to the start of the 1918 flu pandemic, do we have any idea now of, of how and where it began? Have we got slightly more information than Dr. Anderson had? Slightly more, not a great deal more. I mean, the first uh, sort of official cases were recorded in America, in Kansas, at a, at a military base called Camp Funston. 
on the 4th of March 1918. But nobody thinks that was the real beginning of the uh, pandemic. It, it was already pretty infectious by the time the first case came to the infirmary that morning. Uh, within a couple of hours, there were hundreds more. And soon the commanders of that camp had to take over a hangar to accommodate all the patients. I mean, we don't know where it started, but there are basically three theories today that correspond to origins in Kansas, in the United States, so not far from where those first official cases were recorded, in China, in the interior of China, and in a British army base in the north of France at a place called Etape on the Channel Coast. At the moment, we can't choose between those three. We don't have the information to be able to choose between them, um, but it's not impossible that one day we would. Mark, once it got a grip on the human population, I mean, how did it manage to spread around the globe? There was a lot of travel, but not as much travel as now. So did it spread quickly? Were there particular routes? The thing about the Spanish influenza pandemic is that, you know, it coincided with the war in Europe, World War One, And so we know that there were vast movements of troops, both from European uh, colonial settings, such as India, China, and also in the case of France, from their colonies in Vietnam, Cambodia. Uh, and then, of course, when America entered the war in 1917, we saw these vast movements of troops across the Atlantic. So we think that uh, that was the principal means by which this influenza virus was seeded very widely, uh, particularly in Europe and North America. But if you look at the epidemiology of the pandemic, it's clear that there were waves swimming back and forwards like tides, you know, uh, into this European theatre and then back out as troops and men and munitions um, travelled in the opposite direction. The war may have played an important part, not just in terms of epidemiology, but also by congregating, bringing together large numbers of healthy young men and confining them in closed barracks or trenches, creating the sort of ideal conditions almost for the transfer and amplification and, and mutation of a pandemic virus. I mean, it was extremely deadly. It's considered to have been at least 25 times more deadly than any other flu pandemic we know about, which is to say that the case fatality rate, the proportion of people who fell ill who went on to die, was around 2.5% as opposed to the sort of typical 0.1%. So it was vastly more deadly. I mean, we think that the death toll of the 1918 flu was somewhere between 50 and 100 million people. Of the sort of five or so last flu pandemics, none has really killed, apart from that one, more than a couple, one or two, max three, perhaps, million people. So it's really an anomaly and it needs explaining. And that's where we come back to this concatenation of events in the world and the importance of context. And just talk me through the diagnosis side of it. Did it present in an unusual way? I mean, we think of flu, a lot of us have had flu in the past, you know, sort of lethargy and feeling rubbish and, you know, a bit of sneezing and stuff as well. Was it, was it strange in that respect? It struck the world in, in essentially three waves. It depended where you were and uh, the number of waves and when they struck. But three, the first one in the sort of northern hemisphere spring of 1918 was relatively mild, not that different from a seasonal flu. So it started with all the symptoms you just described, fever, headaches or throat, aching joints and so on. Uh, and as in any seasonal flu, there was a very small minority who went on to develop respiratory distress, uh, turn blue in the face, an effect that was called uh, heliotrope cyanosis. 
and basically to die a rather unpleasant death of, of suffocation. When the second wave struck in the Northern Hemisphere autumn of that year, it was far, far worse. That is, the minority of people who went on to develop those horrible symptoms of respiratory distress, turning blue and then black and essentially drowning in their own fluids, sorry, but that's what it was, was much larger. It's really interesting because you actually uh, find yourself in a situation where still the vast majority of people had not much more than a, a seasonal flu and went on to recover, but the minority who didn't had a much different outcome and, and many of them died because there was really no a treatment for them then. I think it's quite interesting to hear what doctors at the time said because um, you have to remember at this period, um, you know, uh, doctors, particularly those who'd served in the military, uh, were no strangers to, you know, awful bacterial diseases in particular, all sorts of horrible diseases that festered in, um, in the, the trenches. Of course, in previous conflicts, when men have been confined in close quarters and barracks, they'd seen terrible outbreaks of measles and pneumonias associated with measles. Um, so they weren't expecting flu, and they certainly weren't expecting a flu that presented so virulently. One doctor, Dr. Herbert French, who um, was working at Guy's Hospital, so, you know, the most shocking symptom was the cyanosis, this sort of horrible bluish-purple mahogany discoloration of, you know, the extremities. And he left an account of this. Uh, he said that, you know, once the cyanosis was up and running, so similar to the way that we see with severe COVID patients when they're intubated and in ventilation, it's very, very severe, and the chance of survival drops, you know, precipitously. He said that the cyanotical blue cases, as he called them, out of every 100 of the blue cases, he estimated something like 95 died. And the point I'm really trying to make is that quite often these, these patients presented initially with what doctors described as a mild influenza, but then it progressed very, very rapidly within a matter of hours. And within 24 hours, the patient might be dead. Let's talk a bit about our current pandemic. So we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic. Um, it's still still going on and, as scientists have said, is set to, set to be with us for some time yet. But scientists have been very, very clear that the pandemic we're living through now, COVID-19, is not anything like flu. So let's just talk a bit about the difference between the 1918 flu pandemic and the COVID pandemic we're living through now. So they are caused both caused by viruses, um, but they belong. The viruses belong to different families. They do have quite different profiles, and this is actually very important. It's sort of key to the way that we've managed this pandemic or mismanaged it from the beginning. Because whenever we trained to manage a hypothetical um, a pandemic in the past. We, we carry out these simulations where members of government and doctors and security advisors and so on get together around a table and try and go through how they would respond to a hypothetical pandemic. And usually the ones they're responding to are flu, because flu has, as far as we know, caused most pandemics in history. And so the narrative lately has been this has actually wrong-footed us to some extent, because we were responding to COVID as we would have to flu, and it's a different disease, and we could have done things differently and perhaps had a better outcome. It's really difficult to know um, what to take away from our experience of flu and to apply to COVID and what not to. But the experience of Wuhan is really interesting right at the beginning, because here's a city of 11 million people, and the Chinese managed to contain the disease there. 
And flu is generally considered, considered uncontainable because it just spreads so fast and so evenly through a population. Um, but the Chinese showed us that that was not necessarily true with COVID. Um, most of the world did not, at least at that stage, follow. And, and that begs the question, could we have done better? Mark, talk me through a bit about, again, sort of how, how this was managed in 1918 compared with now. The first point I would make is that, of course, we didn't know that influenza was a virus and doctors at that time had no possibility of visualising the virus or indeed conducting tests for it and uh, developing vaccines. So that wasn't a possibility. Perhaps even more importantly, we didn't have antibiotics. Um, So we know that although a lot of people contracted primary viral pneumonias, the vast bulk of the mortality was associated with the bacterial fellow travelers of flu. So uh, streptococcus, all the sort of commensal bacteria that live in the nose and throat, became opportunistic and invaders. And often people died from those bacterial pneumonias. But I think the third really important thing is we didn't have such a thing as intensive care medicine in 1918. We we didn't have ICUs and such a thing as critical care beds. If you were a soldier serving the army, of course, you know, you were given priority medical care. But the vast majority of the population, when they got flu, they were told to stay at home and nurse their symptoms, uh, isolate themselves. Very few people went to hospital. We didn't have a national health service, right? We, We didn't have free public health medicine. Uh, We had voluntary hospitals, but those were only for the poorest of the poor. But of course, because of the imperative of war and the need to keep, um, you know, uh, munitions churning out, uh, you know, so a lot of women worked in munitions factories. Um, those had they had to continue producing those munitions. We had to continue ensuring that soldiers were able to travel to the front and back and forth and be supported. So there was really no consideration given to suppressing the spread of the virus through social distancing at scale. I think that is a major, major difference. Dr Niven, the Manchester Medical Officer of Health, has prepared a handbill for public circulation, which sets out some of the precautions to be observed. The sick should at once be separated from the healthy. This is especially important in the case of first attacks in a household, factory or workshop. Infected articles and rooms should be cleansed or disinfected. During the epidemic, special attention to cleanliness and ventilation should be shown in factories and workshops. Work people are advised to wear warm clothing and to avoid unnecessary exposure. I wonder, what was the response to the measures that were taken? I mean, there's obviously a lot of scrutiny, criticism, reflection on how we have coped with the COVID pandemic. But what was the response to the measures taken to handle the situation in 1918 and beyond? In 1918, really, I mean, although we didn't have many medical interventions that were effective against influenza, the key thing to realise is that the British medical profession was rather dismissive of the threat posed by influenza and overly confident in the ability of preventative medicine, English preventative medicine, to deal with it. When the initial reports came out of Spain, people were quite dismissive. And uh, medical commentators wrote things such as, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And, you know, they floated these sort of um, strange psychological theories that, you know, fear itself could be the mother of infection. 
Um, and what I find fascinating about that is, of course, the sort of people who say those things now would be dismissed as conspiracy theorists, right? Um, so we've seen um, a sort of segment of the population uh, who don't accept the need for lockdowns, and indeed who think that the virus is some kind of hoax and that we're spreading fear, and that's the real danger, not the actual biological entity that's causing people to fall ill. It's important to understand that in 1918, Western medicine, as we think about it, was not accepted in large parts of the world. Asia and Africa probably uh, recorded, on average, the highest death rates, and North America, Europe and Australia, the lowest ones. Not only did doctors have nothing to offer in um, in this sort of Western world, but um, in the East, in Africa and uh, Asia, there was, the, you know, in India, for example, people turned to Ayurveda. In um, uh, Japan, they turned to Kampo, which is a form of med- ancient form of medicine that makes use of herbs. The Chinese often uh, tried to sweat it out. They thought the cause was the evil winds. They smoked opium. They used another form of, uh, of herbal medicine, and they paraded uh, figures of dragon kings through the streets. There was this sort of much more mystical view of disease, which had prevailed in Europe, for example, not, not so many uh, um, centuries earlier, and in some places still did. I mean, there was an idea, for example, that this flu was caused by noxious air rising up off the battlefields of Flanders and floating over the world. Professor Hall of Sheffield and Dr Wilfred Harris of St Mary's Hospital London were the first to describe their cases in The Lancet. Naturally, they looked about for a cause of this supposed new illness, and Dr Harris, finding that epidemics with very similar symptoms had occurred at different times, mostly in Germany, after eating sausages, which somehow had gone wrong, the idea occurred that the disease might be due to the ingestion of the same microorganism which caused sausage poisoning, i.e. the Bacillus botulinus, botula, the sausage. Some of the social distancing and public health measures, Mark, you briefly mentioned, that were undertaken in the UK and elsewhere during the 1918 pandemic will be familiar to us today. Um, The Guardian reporting at the time said things like uh, in Manchester and Salford, I think at one private school, the scholars are being dosed with ammoniated quinine. uh, And uh, they also talk about schools being closed, office workers staying at home and so on. But One thing that's also interesting is that it sounds as if there was also pushback against these measures then, as we see today. For example, in San Francisco, there was an anti-mask league organised against face coverings during the 1918 flu pandemic. Is this issue of rebelling against measures and things like fake news, were those a real problem then? It's certainly true um, that in America, which is... um wasn't directly threatened in the war, so that people were somewhat removed. You saw attempts to persuade people to wear masks. I believe that, you know, people were fine for not wearing masks. And there was a sort of pushback afterwards when people thought it was okay. In the United Kingdom, though, there wasn't this sort of coordinated effort at social distancing and at all these sort of hygiene measures. And if you look at what happened in London, different local authorities you saw this constant debate, not dissimilar actually to the debates we have today as to, you know, do you shut schools or do you open schools? So in some authorities, decisions were taken to close schools, but in the adjacent authorities, they kept schools open. Um, And there was a similarly vigorous debate in the pages of The Lancet about ventilation, right? So in the same way that we've seen lots of different sort of scientific opinions about do masks really protect you from getting the virus? You know, is it better to 
ventilate or not to ventilate. Although we have made progress, there's still so much we don't know about the way that these respiratory pathogens spread and what the most effective measures are. So it's not surprising when there is scientific uncertainty that skeptics seize on that uncertainty for whatever ideological reasons to push for more liberal economic policies that suit their interests. There was also an, a, an element of emperor's new clothes. You know, these doctors were desperately trying to combat this scourge and, uh, you know, prescribe things. They didn't have much in their medical bags. Aspirin was about the only thing that had any effects, and they tended to uh, over-prescribe that, bringing in train all sorts of other unpleasant adverse effects. People began to see that after a while. People weren't stupid. They saw that actually the doctors have nothing to offer. They also saw, for example, that the people who were most likely to save your life often were nurses, the people who made sure you were warm and hydrated and, and looked after while you were going through the crisis. There was this kind of sense of, uh, of a loss of faith in medicine and in science, which I think also became very apparent after the war and after the pandemic were judged over whenever that was in each part of the world. You saw, you know, in parts of the world that had embraced Western medicine and that were sort of scientifically minded, there was a massive reaction to science after the war. But for both, both reasons, because of the war, this industrial scale slaughter, and because of the pandemic. And Laura, we don't commemorate pandemics and the lives lost in the same way we do for other things, like for the wars. Are we likely to collectively bury the memories of this pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, in the same way? And what could that mean for our preparedness for a pandemic in another hundred years? This is why I wrote my book, is because I couldn't believe that this thing had been forgotten, which it demonstrably has compared to the war, although I'm going to nuance that in a minute. If I take France, where I live, about 170,000 uh, monuments to the First World War were raised in the 1920s and 30s, of which most are still standing. I may not have found them all, but I think I've found one uh, memorial to the flu. And I'm cheating there in two ways. First of all, it's not exactly in France. It's on the Swiss side of the border in the Jura Mountains. And uh, secondly, it's to the soldiers who died of the flu. So even in that one monument, there's this sort of overshadowing of the flu by the war, which I think is fascinating. We know for a fact that more civilians than soldiers died of the flu. So there's this really strange um, disconnect. And yet when you start uh, researching this and you talk to people, people say, oh, yes, I remember there was somebody in my family who, you know, had or died of the 1918 flu. So what I took away from that is that the individual memories are there buried to some extent, but they haven't ever sort of coalesced into a collective memory, into a historical memory that goes into the textbooks and that's taught in schools as something that happened to humanity. Uh, you know, something that was important for humanity. But when I say I'm going to nuance that, I think, you know, it doesn't work in a sort of particularly linear way. So like the subtitle of my book was The Spanish Flu of 1918 and, and How It Changed the World. And ever since COVID came into our lives, I've been criticized quite a lot, not unreasonably, for using the name Spanish flu, which is, as we all know, is not right. What didn't start in Spain. But my thinking at the time was I'm going to use the one thing that I think everybody knows about that disaster to hook people in. And then I'm going to explain why that name is wrong. I might not have done that now because people know so much more, are so much more interested in the Spanish flu than they would have been pre-COVID. And, you know, indeed, there were lots of stories in the press last year about people going back into their attics and opening the old chests and trying to find letters and diaries from their ancestors who lived through the 1918 flu in order to understand, in order to 
I don't know, guide themselves in dealing with this one. So there's a way in which the present, you know, uh, interacts with the past, which interacts with the present and, and also prepares us for the future or not. Um, there is a really interesting debate amongst uh, memory experts as to whether this pandemic will buck the trend of forgettability, w whether it will be different. And the reason for that is pretty simple. It's that it's the first major pandemic to have happened to us after the internet re revolution. So that if you wanted to, anyone in the world, in fact, who has access to the internet could, if they wanted to, track infection rates and death rates in almost real time since the beginning of this pandemic, they had an overview of the entire thing. They had a sense of this global phenomenon and they could watch it. They had the information at their, at their fingertips. And that information, of course, is now being conserved and there are huge collecting efforts going on already to sort of save all this stuff for the historians of the future. So um, just the information base that we have to start with is much richer than it was in 1918 when data was so hard to, was so hard to get hold of. And the idea is that might affect the way we remember this one and therefore the way in which we take lessons away from it for the future. I am not yet convinced, I have to say. I think there's something inherent about pandemics and possibly natural disasters in general that makes them more forgettable than really obviously politically human phenomena like wars. But I stand to be corrected. <laughs> we will just have to wait and see how long we continue to talk about COVID-19 in the years to come, even if there are times when lots of us wish we could forget it for just a few moments. Thank you to both Laura Spinney and Mark Honigsbaum for joining me. Links to both their books and recent articles for The Guardian can be found on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Tomorrow, we're continuing to mark The Guardian's 200th anniversary with another special episode, this time looking back at the science and politics of the climate crisis. One thing I do know will happen is that we will be living with climate change. If we had taken action that we could have had, certainly in the early 90s and arguably in the 80s or even the 70s we would have been able to work a lot slower than we now need to work at we're having to work at an immense speed at an absolutely almost unimaginable speed and to do so with over a degrees of global warming already you can also find out what else the guardian is doing to mark our 200 years and what's still to come at theguardian.com forward slash 200 there are special podcast episodes like this one as well as videos and events to take part in such as The Guardian at 200, made in Manchester on May the 11th. Again, it's all at theguardian.com forward slash 200. Do go and have a look. See you back here tomorrow. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.